Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and today I'll be talking with Professor Amy Schmitz, the Elwood L. Thomas Missouri Endowed Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law and the Center for the Study of Dispute Resolution. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Uh, It's wonderful to talk with you. Hey, thanks. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. As am I. Um, So as I said, you're the professor at law at uh, the University of Missouri School of Law and the Center for the Study of Dispute Resolution. Um, And I'm going to ask you to begin. The question that I ask all of our guests is, how did you get started in the practice of ADR? And eventually, how did you come to your um, position as a professor? Yeah, thanks. Um, You know, it's kind of funny. I guess I never really expected where I would end up. Um, The truth is, you know, when I was in law school, I wanted to do international human rights law. I was going to save the world. Um, And, um, you know, so I always kind of had this interest in conflict resolution, I would say, even in law school. In fact, I took a, in those days, they didn't have an ADR course in the law school. So I actually took a conflict resolution course from the psychology department. um, and, And because I was interested and wanted to learn about it. Um, And then when I got out in practice, um, I practiced at two different um, law firms, first in Minneapolis and then in Seattle. And at both, I did um, a great deal of construction law. And within construction law, um, it's pretty much standard to do mediation and arbitration. And so I was constantly involved in mediation and arbitration during that time. And I had a huge passion to teach and I care deeply about humanizing law. And, um, and so right away, one of the first classes I ever taught was arbitration at the University of Colorado. And of course, since then I've been working in the area of ADR as well as ODR, um, along with contracts and commercial law. That's great. Um, and when did you become a, a professor? So, um, yeah, so my first professor gig, <laughs> as it were, was at University of Colorado School of Law, and I started in year two, well, actually it was 1999 or early 2000. Um, yeah, and so that was where I first um, taught classes, and as I said, contracts, also secure transactions, arbitration, international arbitration, um, consumer law, and some service learning courses, and, um, and I really loved, you know, it was a great place to be. I miss it. <laughs> it's a wonderful place, of course, in the mountains of Boulder. So, and that's where I got tenure. Um, and then from there, I now I'm at the University of Missouri School of Law and they have the Center for the Study of Dispute Resolution. So I've had an opportunity to really dive even more deeply into ADR and ODR. As a relatively, within the last five years graduate, I, I always, when, when I talk to practitioners, I always um, feel very grateful that um, nowadays we have so many more, um, um, so much more access to uh, ADR than in the past. I know most people I talked to said when I was getting my start, there were no classes and now there's centers and so many different courses. I think I took six courses when I was in law school. So very grateful wow, for the proliferation. That is really neat. No, it's wonderful. I mean, I just remember right away when I was in law school thinking, especially because I was international, interested in international human rights. And I realized, well, gosh, conflict is at the heart of all of this. And, and really, aren't we supposed to be problem solvers? But yet there were no classes that really took that into account. So that's really good to hear that nowadays there's a lot more courses offered all over the place. So that's great. Mm-hmm. 
So um, in addition to teaching wonderful courses on ADR, um, I know you do a lot of research as a professor. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about some of the areas of interest for you as a researcher, a scholar? Sure. So um, yeah, I, I guess, um, especially most in the last 20 years, um, really, I've been doing a lot of research of how the intersection, I would say, of a, a lot of things, but I really, things that sort of are at the intersection of technology and law, and especially technology and dispute resolution. Um, so I've really been looking deeply at how technology is really transforming the way we resolve disputes um, and how technology can create disputes, right? And so I also do research in consumer law and consumer remedies and access to remedies um, and arbitration in general um, as well. Um, quite a bit of my recent work though does have to do with online dispute resolution. I'm a fellow of the National Center for Technology and Dispute Resolution. I'm also the co-chair of the ODR Task Force for the American Bar Association, and I'm the um, co-chair for the Technology Committee for the Section on Dispute Resolution for the American Bar Association. So, so lots of ODR and considerations of technology, even smart contracts. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot happening there, right? <laughs> you know, even thinking right. about arbitration. Um, I have a new article that'll be coming you know, shortly on how technology is transforming arbitration. So, um, so yeah, there's there's so much happening. I mean, obviously, technology has been just changing the way we do a lot of things, especially in the wake of COVID. Absolutely. Um, I guess it's a silver lining that there are all these advancements in online uh, dispute resolution. And also, I mean, generally our ability to communicate digitally. There's a lot of uh, leaps and bounds being made there. Um, uh, we wish it was under uh, better circumstances. Um, so I guess to kind of set the parameters a little bit, you talked about online dispute resolution or ODR. Um, could you give kind of a general definition for what that term usually uh, consists of? So here's the funny thing. Um, that's actually a controversial question, believe it or not. Okay. But um, there's a lot of just, I know. <laughs> there's actually a lot of disagreement about what exactly is ODR and what is online dispute resolution. So I'm not really part of the sort of, um, I kind of stay out of that fray in the sense that um, I say, you know, let's look at the different ways that, in fact, even the class I teach, I teach a class um, both for the LLM program and for the JD program at University of Missouri. And with both, I call it um, dispute resolution in the digital age, because I don't want to sort of be confined by the term ODR. And I want to think about it in terms of how can we use technology to help us prevent and resolve disputes, right? So how can we best harness technology in a way that expands access to justice in a way that is fair and efficient, right? Those are all goals that we're trying to achieve. And so I really come to ODR from a problem solving um, standpoint, and I wanna really explore the ways that we can use technology to solve problems. And, um, and so I, I have a pretty broad, um, broad considerations when I think about um, technology and especially when we talk about measuring access to justice and also the dangers of digitizing due process, right? And so, and so we have to balance the costs and benefits and try to find the best way that we can use technology in order to solve problems. I, I had no idea it was a controversial definition. I know. <laughs> um, 
but maybe that'll boost our podcast ratings by have, having such a, a right. controversial. Yeah, let's just throw in politics and some other. <laughs> I think that's that's beyond the purview of our of our uh, of our topic here. Um, so, uh, granted that it is a controversial and a, a broad topic, um, could you give me just a few concrete examples of you know yeah. what what an yeah. ODR might look like? And ODR yeah, percent. Like yeah, yeah, no, you're totally fine. One hundred percent. I'm happy to provide some examples, actually. And when I um, teach my class, and when I think about it, um, I think about how technology can be used in order to assist negotiation. Um, maybe you can have a solution explorer that helps prevent disputes. Um, but really, a lot of ODR is online mediation as well as online arbitration. Those are some very concrete examples. Um, and especially now, as we're seeing with the courts, there's a lot of programs happening throughout the world where we are having these um, online mediation in particular as a precursor to any sort of litigation or even online processes as an alternative altogether to litigation. So we are really seeing ODR in a lot of different, different ways. Um, at the, the same time, of course, there are private ODR providers and private ODR processes that are taking shape. And there's just so much happening and it's really broad range. Uh, e there's even automated dispute resolution where you're using AI in order to provide a resolution. And sometimes that might be what people want, right? Because maybe speed and efficiency is really paramount. And so there's a lot of different, really cool, exciting things happening throughout the world um, in the world of ODR. And so it does, it does include a lot of really creative and exciting ways that we can resolve disputes. It's, it's great to hear, I guess, how far we've come because in a lot of ways, when I think of ODR, I think of those, um, what, when I try and pay my, um, my internet bill and I have a dispute and I have to go through the little chat box where it never understands what I'm saying. But I, I know now that and it's in real ODR is now vastly superior to that. And it's a lot more intuitive. Um, and it's just a completely different world than it was even just a few years ago. Oh, 100%. And that's really important for the listeners to understand, you know, we're not just talking about click and settle, right? I mean, there were, you know, there are, there are things out there and that might be what somebody wants in some circumstances, a click and settle type mechanism. But ODR itself is so much more exciting than that and can include so much more um, in terms of really providing, providing meaningful resolutions that provide real satisfaction to those that use the, these different processes. Again, they're not all perfect. They're not all perfect and there's still certainly um, much more to be done, but it's pretty exciting to watch what is happening, right? As long as we're careful and we are sure to to guard due process and to guard um, fairness along with it. You know, you want efficiency, but you want to balance that with fairness because fairness is still incredibly important because the goal, many of us got into this, you know, a long time ago, um, 20 years ago, thinking about technology with a goal of using technology to expand access to justice. Um, so certainly we don't want it to become a situation where it actually contracts access to justice. Right. And I think that's also important to note in that ODR is not just something that happens on say an online retailer or eBay, but I know now public institutions like courts are now implementing their own ADR processes. So it's, it's gone beyond kind of the little, um, 
you know, buyer seller type disputes. And it's, it's getting into the point where, you know, litigation is um, inclusive included in ODR processes now. Well, and the truth is also, especially um, in this sort of COVID age, um, there's a lot of sort of misperceptions that, oh, well, isn't ODR just using Zoom or a virtual hearing? And the answer is no, actually. Um, there's a lot more creativity out there. There's platforms such as Crack um, out of India, but they're now sort of being, um, they're working in tandem with Mediate.com um, in order to provide um, a platform for resolutions that includes a lot of different mechanisms, um, text-based as well as um, video-based um, and different sorts of remedies that might be available. So there's a lot that's happening. Also exciting, um, Utah. Utah has a sandbox, essentially, that they're using and allowing for kind of trying out different sort of ODR processes and pilot processes in um, Utah with respect to small claims, especially and online dispute resolution. Justice Jimenez has been really amazing in being willing to really try new things. And I just think that's fantastic with a goal toward um, expanding access to justice. Another example, just to throw out um, on the international stage, really groundbreaking is the CRT, the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia. They have been just amazing. It's expanded greatly because of the success. The other really wonderful thing about the CRT that they have done is along the way they've measured um, progress, right? And so constantly they're gathering data and looking at what's wrong and what's right with their processes. And so they're always adapting and changing, which is actually something incredibly important about using technology and dispute resolution and ODR in general is that it's much more adaptable, right? And so you can pivot quickly. You can realize what are the problems and then address those problems. Whereas unfortunately, um, for the most part, the judicial process has pretty much been the same <laughs> for many, many, many years. And it's not as adaptable um, as ODR. I, I guess to add a, a personal anecdote, I, I have a friend and um, she's, she's a, from Michigan. And I remember talking to her a while back and she was shocked that I was so excited about her traffic ticket um, because I had read that um, Michigan traffic court was starting to ODR, ODR and she was a participant. So I was so interested in, you know, how the process went and what she thought about it and all this. So it was very efficient and um, positive process for her, but she was unnerved by how excited I was to hear about her traffic ticket. <laughs> no, it is. I actually, I get that. That was Matterhorn, I'm sure. So Matterhorn is one of the main um, providers for a lot of the courts, especially for traffic tickets. And they got their start actually in Michigan. So I'm quite sure that that's what she was using. And um, those are some great people behind that um, program as well. Well, that's good to hear. Isn't it funny how these things, especially when you hear about people actually using them. I know um, Co-Parenter, that's another um, ODR app basically that's being used for parenting plans. And I had a friend who was using that and I was all excited, like, how'd it go? What, what'd you think? What'd you think? <laughs> and it's fun. It's fun. You know, we had just recently for the American Bar Association was the Tech Expo. So as, as wonderful as it is to talk about, um, I guess moving on from very specific examples, um, I know a lot of your research is, uh, is now moving towards um, not just talking about creating ODR systems, but actually to measuring the efficacy of systems that are already in place and finding out how well those work and ways to improve them. 
would, you, would you like to talk a little bit about you know, that, that research and the efficacy and measuring uh, ODR processes? Yeah, I think it's you know really important that we kind of you know don't just rush. My concern is we definitely do not want to have just technology for technology's sake, right? What we really want is we want to use technology in a way that actually expands access to justice. Well, that means a couple of things. Number one, we actually have to invest in research in order to be sure that we are achieving the goals that we're seeking to achieve, right? And we can make a lot of assumptions about the bright, shiny new toy. Um, I am I'm a part of that group that's been sort of championing um, technology, and certainly I continue to do that. But the truth is, I want to know what's working, what is not working, what do we need to do to make it better, right? Um, and not to sort of just assume that it's that it's going to expand access to justice. I think instead we actually need to measure um, measure access to justice. And there's so a couple of things. Um, number one is Pew Research is Center is actually engaging in research, so is the National Center for State Courts, and they're starting to look at quantitative and qualitative data, and many of us um, who are not even part of those studies are still very interested in looking at data in order to really think about both qualitatively and quantitatively whether or not technology is working, what, what is working, what is not working, and as I said, really to address then any problems that there are, right? Because again, um, what's so great about ODR is that it is adaptable. And so we need the research in order to know what we need, what's necessary in order to, again, um, with a goal of efficiency and fairness um, and making sure you have a proper balance. Right, and I think that's one of the great benefits of ODR generally is that, well, to contrast it with a lot of you know, traditional court rules, um, you know, amending a rule of civil procedure is years and sometimes decades long process. But if you see an aspect of an online dispute resolution system that's not working as well as it could be, or you see room for improvement, they are a lot more adaptable and it's um, easier to implement those changes and see what works best for the greatest number of people. Yep, 100%, absolutely. So what are some of the, the different tools that um, you or these studies that you mentioned using to measure that efficacy? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, so first of all, I think whenever you are engaging in research and thinking about, I think you have to look at framing, right? So right away, I think you have to sort of take a step back and frame what it is you want to research, right? So you don't just kind of jump right in. You really need to kind of take a step back and frame your research. And I am kind of one of those, you know, keep it simple, stupid people. You know, I like to think of things in the most simplistic way possible in order to just really make it real and, and think about real people because it's real people that use the courts. It's real people that have disputes. And so I've always been um, very focused on user-centric design of online dispute resolution systems and also asking real people um, what they need, what works, what doesn't work. Um, so that is one aspect that I think is very important, which will include things like surveys and focus groups in order to really find out, you know, how people are engaging in a process, what worked, what didn't work, right? Um, but when we kind of just take a step back, um, one thing I note in my article, Measuring Access to Justice um, in the Rush to Digitize um, in Fordham Law Review, and in that article, I kind of lay out um, framing in terms of who, how, and what. Um, of course, that's very simplistic, but but again, I think it gives us kind of a framework. Um, who, 
meaning does ODR open access to justice for those without representation or those who face other resource, language, or physical barriers? Are we bringing in new people who might have not otherwise gone to court? Or are we just simply giving more to the haves, right? Are we creating more of a, of a, of a gap between the haves and have-nots? That's not what we're looking for, right? So the question is, are new people using this process and accessing remedies, um, people who would not have gone to court for various reasons, right? And so it's really important to figure out who is actually using these ODR processes, and more importantly, who is not using these ODR processes. So I think that question of who has to be central into research. And when I think of how, that also has to be central into research, asking, do the users perceive the process as, as fair? And do they feel it works well? Is it user-centric design? Can we even include real-time sentiment analysis to determine whether someone actually using the process feels empowered by the process? Or is it frustrating? Does it actually turn people away from access to remedies? So we really need to ask how the process works. Is it actually user-centric? from the standpoint of a real user, of real people, not simply imposing our own ideas of what we think they ought to want. So that's who and that's how, and then finally what. And that really looks at, do the ODR users get fair or different remedies than they would have obtained through court or another face-to-face -face process? So it's really important to kind of look at, are you getting different deals? Um, this was tremendously important. Um, there was a round table, I guess it was two years ago, back in the old days. Do you remember there used to be these things called airplanes and you would actually travel places? Vaguely, you might remember this. But anyway, back in those days, I, so I flew to London for a meeting and what they were doing is looking at how they were going to access um, or how they were going to assess how Her Majesty's online courts, how they were doing in terms of, you know, efficiency and fairness. And one of the things that came up was this question of, well, we got to make sure that these online processes don't mean that people are getting different deals or lesser deals, right? And so that's another important aspect to look at. So who, how, and what? And you can do that through a lot of different means. Um, and there's a lot of creativity happening right now in terms of gathering data. Um, which kind of gets into the weeds, but, but I think the framing is really important in terms of who, how, and what, and really thinking about user-centric design and thinking about real people and not simply those that are already happy with technology or already competent with technology. Um, other research that I've done for prior articles really brought to light the importance of mobile access um, because many, many people throughout the world only access the internet on a mobile device. And so access to justice really requires that mobile friendly processes be used as well. And, and that kind of, to me is reminiscent of what you said earlier in that you know, we shouldn't be doing this for the sake of just the new shiny technology. It, it's really important to see what works for the people that are actually going to be using it. And I, I imagine that's in a lot of ways the people that are designing these may not automatically think the same way that the people that are using them. Yeah, and it's sometimes surprising. Um, I have a little anecdote here because I will say, um, so as I was kind of all these different things and I was at um, 
one of the, we have a thing that we do, the ODR forum. <laughs> the people, our weird little group of ODR people, and we all do these yearly meetings. And anyway, um, and then I was talking to somebody and we were like, gosh, let's just do kind of an, not a scientific, but let's just start doing some surveys, right? And asking people um, how they would feel about a certain process and what they were looking for. And it was really eye-opening. Um, and it just, even just talking to your neighbors, talking to your friends, talking to your parents, talking to people in the community, you know, what kinds of things would you feel comfortable with? And this is before COVID though. Um, and it was really interesting. There were things that you maybe wouldn't have thought of that are so important to people when they think about access to justice and they think about how they would like to access remedies in a perfect world. And I just, again, cannot emphasize how important it is to really think about real people um, when, you're, when you're designing any kind of a process. I guess, I guess after talking a little bit about how you, um, you, you measure some of these processes and how well they're working. So once you have that data, it, how do you implement that and how do you get from, you know, analyzing the issues to fixing them? Right. So let's say, for example, um, and this has happened with different processes, for example, um, you know, let's say you um, originally design a process um, and you're thinking, oh, this will be easy. Right. And this has happened, I will tell you. So I've, I've been teaching ODR for like five, six years. OK. And I've had a lot of tried a lot of different things out. And sometimes at first glance, a developer may think that the process is really self-explanatory and super easy. But for real people who aren't familiar with the technology, it can actually be really difficult. And so let's say that you are doing some user testing. Let's say that you're actually doing real time sentiment analysis and you find out that, gosh, during this intake form is really frustrating for people and leads them to stop the process. One of the most meaningful things you can do is gather evidence that people actually leave a process, meaning let's say they get to point B in the filing process for an online dispute resolution um, system, and that makes people drop out. So what is a dropout rate? So if you have a really high dropout rate at point B in the process, then you know, well, gosh, we're going to have to do something about point B. It's obviously very frustrating for the user. And so maybe we need to rethink that and make it um, easier and make it more user friendly, right? So, so that kind of information is tremendously important. And some of this you can even gather on the back end just by looking at the clicks, you can find out when the dropout happens and when people drop out of a, of a, um, a process. And that can just, that's just easy data to get your hands on, right? And so that might be something. Also, you might from survey or focus group research, find out that people really want to know that they have access to a real human, which is something I learned in my own research actually, is that people, it just makes you feel better to know that there is a real person. Have you ever had a dispute, for example, with Uber? A couple times, yes. You cannot get to a real person. <laughs> it's not even humanly possible, which is so frustrating. Um, I think they've rectified that now, but for a long time, there was no way um, to get to a real human, which is truly frustrating. So again, I think what's really important is, is you can, from the results, you can then adapt and change and address the problem, which is something really wonderful and amazing about ODR and why I think it's going to continue to improve over time and just continue to get better and better. Yeah, that's that's really great, and it, it always I, I always think about how 
how easy it is to measure so many different things with ODR in you know, real life only processes, I guess your best bet might be to just give people a survey and have them circle things, but you can really measure very granular data points. Um, and especially when you talked about, you know, where do people drop out? Um, that, that seems like such a valuable uh, piece of information that you couldn't really gather otherwise. And let me just emphasize again, something I said earlier, um, you have to do both qualitative and quantitative research when you look at ODR. And the reason I say that is um, years, years ago, I did some, I did a, a research, um, a survey, it started out with survey research, um, and this had to do with consumer contracting and consumers access to remedies. And, um, you know, what people do and what they say they do are two different things. Mm-hmm. And so survey research is not 100%, right? And so if you can couple the qualitative survey research with quantitative research, it's going to be much more robust. Absolutely. So I think when we talk about ODR nowadays, there, there's almost an elephant in the room because the unfortunate um, circumstances of COVID and a lot of the restrictions um, have necessitated an increase in the use of ODR, which you know, obviously is um, not a great situation for the most of the world to be in, but it has also given a lot of opportunities to learn more about um, ODR and how to improve those processes. So would you, how would you say that COVID has impacted the use of ODR? um, Well, it's kind of what we say, especially a lot of us who are fellows of the National Center for Technology and Dispute Resolution and people who have kind of been in this world of ODR for a long, long time, right? And so, so some of us are, part of it is sort of like, what took so long, right? <laughs> like now suddenly we've been like thrown into, in fact, it's kind of funny, the um, article in Fordham Law Review, I wrote that before COVID. And right. it's kind of funny because now I think rush to digitize is on steroids, right? So like now we're really digitizing everything. And so, I mean, I think COVID has of course changed the way we interact in every level, right? I mean, I think about, for example, um, my family and the way now I can interact with them on Zoom, which would not have been something my parents would have ever thought about doing before COVID, right? I mean, that would, they don't, that's just not, my mom never uses a cell phone. Like these would not be things that they would want to do. But I think COVID has moved everybody into using technology at a much greater rate. And that's definitely true with dispute resolution because we see courts um, trying out ODR to a much greater extent because it's really the only way, right? Um, so many mediators have reached out. I mean, you know this just within the section for the study of dispute resolution, um, just reaching out saying, gosh, I'm going to have to move online because what else is there? Arbitrations have moved online because what else is there? Um, the article that will be coming out um, soon that I just finished, um, Arbitration in the Age of COVID, is because it is all moved online. And how will the 1925 Federal Arbitration Act apply to now online arbitration, which has become the norm. Um, So COVID has made a huge impact, I would say, on the growth, especially of virtual hearings. Um, But I also think there's a lot of companies out there and a lot of um, software developers and just a lot of folks thinking how they can become part of this because now um, it's definitely just grown by leaps and bounds. And hopefully in the future, 
when we are able to use a lot of more of the in-person processes again, we'll still be able to, you know, appropriately balance, you know, those processes with the new and improved ODR processes and, um, I guess, reach a point of equilibrium where we're getting the best of both worlds, which I think is. Right. is cool. No, I agree. I mean, I definitely, I, I always say this to my students and I feel strongly that ODR is not right for every single kind of dispute. It definitely is not. And sometimes face-to-face -face processes are absolutely essential. And so I don't think we want to sort of throw out, you know, never have any in-person dispute resolution um, because there's certainly a lot to be said for face-to-face um, -face and in-person processes as well. But most definitely, I think we're, we're just gonna see a change in culture. Um, the culture has definitely changed. For example, I think a lot of law firms um, that you know have been where lawyers are flying all over the place for um, arbitrations and mediations, I think a lot of clients are gonna be less inclined to pay for that travel now that they know there's other ways available. So there's a lot of considerations here. I think there's a shift. There's a definitely shift um, in the wake of COVID toward allowing for more use of technology and dispute resolution. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the upside and improvements that have been made. Um, but I guess just looking, looking forward, what do you say, what do you, what do you think is the, the biggest issue that ODR needs to uh, tackle in the future? And do you have any ideas about how to go about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the work of, so the ODR task force, um, I'm the co-chair that I mentioned earlier for the American Bar Association, and also I coder the International Council on Online Dispute Resolution. I'm also part of that effort. And there's also efforts, um, I do research with um, the Cyber Justice Laboratory in Canada, and there's a lot of different groups out there throughout the world who are worried about kind of having no structure, best practices, rules, standards, um, it's kind of the Wild West right now with respect to online dispute resolution. Anyone can just kind of say, hey, I'm going to create an ODR process, and there they go, right? And so there's concern, um, me included, concern for ethical best practices and making sure that we provide best practices, guide rails, whatever you want to call it, standards, principles. Um, we do have, so iCoder, as I mentioned earlier, and you can go to odr.info. So odr.info, um, it provides, um, and looking at sort of different resources that have already been out there for a while. Um, a good friend of mine, Leah Wing, she is an expert in ethics with respect to ODR. And, um, and there's a lot of sort of standards and principles that, or not a lot, there are standards and principles that have been put out by iCoder, for example, and now building on that, we with the American Bar Association, and as I said, with um, the council as well, we're trying to give more um, substance to that in the world of now with um, expanded ODR, really giving substance to best practices and, and going beyond simply um, standards, but really trying to provide, provide more guidance um, for individuals as they incorporate technology into their dispute resolution practice. Also for courts. Um, as well. And that's become another hot topic as well as providing guardrails around the use of ODR. Um, and I do think it's really important that we make sure that fairness and justice remain central in our dispute resolution systems. And that it's not simply um, a matter of sort of quick and dirty justice, but actually trying to um, do the right thing and expand access to justice. 
Um, another really big issue and area for improvement is simply um, the digital divide still exists. Um, I don't know if you are, from, but there's kids right now that aren't able to attend school because they don't have the internet that's necessary for them to be part of online learning. Um, I know here in Missouri, that's a real issue for many children. They simply do not have that access. And that's the same when you talk about um, ODR in the courts. So for example, if you decide as a judicial system, which makes sense from an efficiency standpoint to say, okay, we're gonna close the face-to-face -face doors to our small claims. The only way you can get a remedy in a small claims case is to do it online. Well, I understand why a court might wanna do that. They would definitely save money, especially considering in the current um, sort of budget issues that a lot of cities are facing in the wake of COVID, a lot of cities might wanna do that. Well, what does that mean for the people who don't have adequate access to the internet? Well, it probably means you're gonna to have to set up kiosks or maybe have helpers available to help those individuals. Again, it's just a matter of making sure that whatever we do in terms of implementing ODR, that it's done with um, your eyes open and thinking about guarding fairness. And, and I think we all have to come together and sort of have standards and best practices available so that courts, practitioners, they know what things to look, about, look at and what to think about um, as they design and use ODR systems. Uh, absolutely, and I, I think that's also an important part about um, encouraging people. Or, sorry, I, I also think that's important because um, when somebody has confidence in the system, whether the procedures are, you know, they're using best practices and they're adhering to ethical guidelines, it makes them more willing to use the system. And I think having that faith in um, the system that you're using is obviously going to increase people going for that, going to use that system. So having those best practices and those ethical guidelines are important to getting people to take, uh, take advantage of ODR systems. Absolutely. And for all the listeners, um, you can go to iCoder in order to see the different sort of standards that have already been put out there and some of the other resources um, that are available. But as I said, we're, we're working on that and we're working on giving more depth and, and giving, giving more um, substance to help individuals know and courts um, know what sort of things to think about as you're developing and using ODR systems. Definitely. And, and we'll leave a link in the um, description of the podcast so you can just click right through there. Um, so I know you've also mentioned that you have an article coming, coming up soon um, that it touches on a lot of the topics we've talked about today, I think specifically with uh, some COVID issues and developments in ODR. Is that right? Yeah. So there's a few different things. Um, there's the Fordham article that just came out um, a little bit earlier this year. Um, Fordham Law Review, the Measuring Access to Justice and the Rush to Digitize. Um, but then um, more recently, um, it will be coming out as part of a book. Um, I co-authored a chapter with Jan Martinez, which is ODR in the United States. So that's kind of broader with respect to online dispute resolution in the United States. It's part of a book on ODR by Ethan Catch and others. Um, so that'll be coming out. Also another piece with um, Leah Wing on ethics with respect to online dispute resolution and family cases. And then another that will be coming out um, quite soon is with respect to online arbitration in particular and looking at how the Federal Arbitration Act 
um, applies in different ways um, for online arbitration. So that one really focuses more on just the, what I call OARB, which is online arbitration as opposed to other types of online dispute resolution. Well, that is, that is quite an impressive publication list in such a, a short window of time. Um, you know, some people bake bread, right? <laughs> We've been in this pandemic, you know, so I'm going to, yeah. There's also the podcast, um, The Arbitration Conversation, and we're almost up to 50 episodes. So, um, you know, oh, maybe great. we'll have to have you on and then I can interview you. Um, I, I don't know that I'd have that much to contribute about ODR other than, you know, <laughs> a great interest and appreciation. I will just gush about how wonderful it is without any sort of academic underpinnings. But um, I would highly recommend people um, read your article and I, I think we can provide links to that as well. Um, and it, I, I read it myself in preparation for this talk and it was fascinating and I love learning more about ODR and um, beyond the different types of ODR and the, the systems that are in place, you know, how we can work to analyze and improve those. I, I thought that was all fascinating. And I highly recommend to all of our listeners to check out your other work when it comes out um, and some of your other work um, that you've published in the past. I, I encourage everyone to learn as much about ODR um, as they can, because I think as we've talked about, yeah, it's, it's the future and it's going to become more and more prevalent and, um, I think it's essential to have a, a good knowledge of those systems and how they work. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure just to talk about all of this. Um, really delightful. And uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I had a lot of fun uh, talking with you today. Um, and I hope to see you soon when all the pandemic is over and maybe we can go to All conferences. And yeah, in the I future. know. You, right? Like, remember those days? The ABA conferences, and you actually got to go somewhere. <laughs> actually, awesome. the last the last time I, I traveled was to was to Minneapolis, I think. Hey, there you go. My old stomping grounds. Well, good for you. Good deal. Well, but uh, Professor Schmitz, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It was wonderful to talk to you. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to learn more about ODR. Um, so thank you for coming on. Thank you. And I'll give you the SSRN page so people can link to any of those articles. Awesome. And to our listeners, please uh, check out Professor Schmitz's articles, uh, both her previously published ones and her forthcoming articles and books. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>